Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Last week, we wrapped up our series on the Gospel of John, and uh, uh, there are several series that we have done as a church over the years that really just stand out to me, and I know will for a long time, and I know that the Gospel of John is going to be one of those. Uh, just preparing for that, that uh, series was very impactful for me, and I hope it was uh, for you uh, hearing it. But the next couple of weeks are going to serve as sort of a transition series. It's going to help us to put the final wraps on the Gospel of John. It's a series that we're calling, He Has Risen, Now What? Uh, so he Has Risen, Now What? Now, in short, this series is, is how do we take everything that we've just studied within the Gospel of John, uh, we studied for about three months, how do we take all of that? What do we do with it? Uh, wh- what do we do with what we've just studied. Now, the life of the Apostle Peter, uh, the disciple, is going to be a large focus in this series, but it's actually something that he wrote in one of his letters that gives us kind of the foundation for this series. So Peter wrote this around 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So right here, what Peter does is he gives us the audience of who he is writing this letter to. And if you need kind of a translation here, he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians who have received the gospel message. And what's his message to those Christians? Uh, On to verse 5, he says to them, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. So it's really pretty. It's almost poetic here. And we have the audience. We have the, the instruction. Now what's the purpose of all of this? And he says that in the next verse in verse 8. Peter says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Peter is doing here is Peter is trying to prevent something, and Peter is warning against something. He is trying to prevent Christians from having a knowledge of Jesus Christ that's actually ineffective and unproductive, for the kingdom of God. Now, we should have a hunger and a thirst for the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Scripture, but there, there should be a desire in our hearts not just to gather uh, information and tuck it into the recesses of our brain, but to take that information and go beyond knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but translate it into a productive and effective knowledge for the kingdom of God. Now, I have learned, as I said, a lot over the past few months in this series on the Gospel of John. But what we're talking about now is taking that knowledge of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and making it productive and effective for the kingdom of God. Your impact for the kingdom of God will not be based on how much you know. It'll be based on what you do with what you know. Peter says right here uh, in in 2 Peter, he says, there is a knowledge of Christ that is ineffective and unproductive 
We don't want to be known for that. Amen? All right, there are, uh, or there is a liberal sect of Christianity who call themselves the Red Letter Christians, uh, which sounds really good, uh, but it's not. Uh, they, they, they base their teachings solely on the words of Jesus Christ, and they disregard all of the remainder of Scripture. Now, if you only have access to the words of Jesus Christ, in those words are our life and salvation. So, so there is sufficiency there. However, to choose to disregard all the remainder of Scripture is to do yourself an immeasurable disservice. Uh, the, the entirety of the Old Testament, for instance, points to Jesus. It helps to substantiate his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God. It establishes the need for a Savior. It illustrates the inability of mankind to, to, to meet the righteousness that God requires, and it establishes the need for the grace of Christ. So to, to disregard the entirety of the Old Testament is to disregard the, the, the inspired word of God. And, and if you look into this, this sect of Christianity, the reason that they do this uh, is not to emphasize the value of Jesus' words. It's actually to devalue everything else because what they are attempting to do is mold the word of God to fit their, their views rather than change their views to align with the word of God. Uh, and that's just concerning the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, Outside of Jesus' words in the New Testament, so Acts through Revelation, uh, it, it reveals to us how the people who actually encountered Jesus, uh, it, it reveals uh, how they were impacted by Jesus Christ on two levels. The first level is in their actions, and the second, second level is in their ideology or their doctrine or their mindset. So in other words, the, the Bible from Acts to Revelation uh, the, the remainder of the New Testament after the Gospels, uh, what we are given is how the people's actions and their mindsets are changed by the life and ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is crucial because if we have authentically encountered Jesus Christ, we should have similar responses both in our actions and in our mindset. So this morning, we're going to focus primarily uh, on that change of mindset that takes place uh, in the Word of God. And we see this response immediately following the gospel story, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And, and that change of life uh, mindset, we're going to see how it became a change of lifestyle. And that change in mindset primarily encircles a single word that you've heard here many times, and that word is grace. Uh, if I were to think of a moment uh, in my life where everything changed forever in that moment, uh, it was eight years ago this past Monday. It was April 17th, 2015. That was the day our first child was born. Everything changed from that moment. It's like a line in the sand. You got BC and you got AD. You got before children and after descendants, okay? But everything changes. Our priorities changed. Our responsibilities changed, and if you have children, you know your freedoms change. You have none anymore. We're lucky to get two dates a year. Um, that is what we got last year, by the way. So we're working on that, though. But there is a, a clear difference when you have kids of before children and after children. And if we take a step back and we look at the entirety of Scripture, the entire Bible, when we get to the end of the Gospel of John or the end of any of the Gospels for that, for that matter, 
this would be that line in the sand. And the difference before Christ and after Christ in the Bible, it comes down to this element of grace. Now, if we consider, uh, I'll show you what I mean, if we, if we consider the teachings on grace throughout the Bible, the whole Bible, uh, particularly according to the New Testament understanding and definition of grace, here's what you'll find. In the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, uh, this defines how the Israelites were to live their lives. It governed their lives. What we find is grace is completely absent. There is not a single mention of grace in the law. And in fact, if you take all of the Old Testament and you're looking uh, into grace, it's mentioned about seven times and never in the context of a teaching on grace. But then Jesus happens. And then the cross happens and the resurrection happens. And if we look just from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, what we find is grace is now mentioned in 20 of 23 books and more than 100 times. Now, we just came out of the Old Testament, and it was almost never mentioned at all. And now, after the cross, it's all anyone is talking about because the cross is that line in the sand. Uh, I remember uh, being on a road trip, and I think it was New Mexico. We pulled up to this gas station, and they had a line uh, right there uh, on the ground, and it said, this is the Continental Divide. Everything from this point flows to the Pacific Ocean, Everything from this point flows to the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and there's just a line. And that's kind of what we have here with the cross. Everything before the cross points to, grace, or to the law. Everything from this point on is pointing to grace. And this should come at no, as no su surprise because John said this is what was taking place. Uh, John said that what Jesus was doing was ushering in the era of grace. So in John 1, 14, John is writing, remember, the prelude to his gospel, and he says, The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. On to verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John said, This is what Jesus came to do to establish grace, to bring grace. Now, this is interesting because Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. He knows that he is establishing an era of grace, a covenant of grace, but his strategy or his method in doing so is far different than you and I would choose. Uh, our kids just playing, started playing soccer. They had their first game yesterday. Uh, and you don't expect a lot of action out of seven and eight-year-olds playing soccer. Just so you know, don't just say, hey, let's go watch a seven-year-old play soccer. It's not that fun. But uh, we were treated to a nice surprise because shortly after the game started, uh, one of the kids kicked a shot from like really far out for a seven-year-old. We're talking about 30 or 40 feet. Uh, and it went right into the goal. And uh, the only problem was it was his own net. But after that, after that, every time that kid got near the ball, everyone started yelling, go to the other net. And every time he would get near it, you would hear the crowd start to call, go the other way. That's your goal. Because uh, when we want something to change, when, when we want someone to understand something, we remind someone to do it over and over. We use the process uh, of repetition. You go the other direction now, and we repeat it. 
We use repetition just to instill knowledge. And biblically, Jesus did this at times. In John chapter 15, Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples the importance of abiding, uh, of remaining in him at all times. And in John 15, he repeats the word abide 11 times in the span of 10 verses. He says, abide, 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 abide 11 times in 10 verses. And if the disciples forgot everything else that he just taught, they're going to remember that he said to abide in him because he repeated it so many times. Now, what about grace? If John says that Jesus came to bring us this era of grace, what was Jesus's method of doing so? Was it repetition? Uh, and, And I find this fascinating. Within the Gospels, Jesus mentions grace zero times. Within the gospel, Jesus never teaches on grace. He never talks about grace. He never mentions grace. So we have sort of this gap in scripture because John begins by saying, hey, uh, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to establish grace. The law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus Christ. And then we have this gap in Jesus' ministry where he never mentions grace. And then we have the cross. And then we have grace, 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 grace all over scripture. It's all they want to talk about. And what we find is when Jesus came along, rather than teaching on grace, he lived a life that was so radically full of grace It's the only message anyone got from it. He didn't have to talk about it because he lived it. This was his life. And he would do this by putting himself in these situations that actually pitted himself between the law and grace. And every time he would choose grace, he wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't say, guys, pay attention. I'm about to display grace. He would just do it and do it so radically. One of my favorites is in Matthew chapter 8. In verse 1, it says that when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He is pitted in this moment between the law and grace, because the law in Leviticus said anyone with a skin disease, anyone with a skin disease was ceremonially unclean, and their uncleanness was contagious. If you touch someone unclean, you become unclean, and then you both have to go into isolation. But watch what Jesus does in verse 3. Jesus reached out, reached out his hand, and touched the man, and said, I am willing, be clean, and immediately the man was cleansed of his leprosy. Now let me ask you a question. How many times throughout the Gospels does Jesus heal someone without touching them? A lot of times. Uh, We just read about one in John chapter 4 where uh, the official comes to Jesus and says, hey, my son is sick, and Jesus just says, okay, go back to him. He's better now. Jesus didn't have to touch anybody. In fact, Jesus could have healed this man without breaking the law, but Jesus instead touched the man to prove a point. Touching the man with, with leprosy was not necessary for the physical healing. But I believe that it was necessary for an emotional and spiritual healing that this man needed as an outcast in all of society. Jesus chose to touch him because this man needed to know that he was not untouchable. Jesus chooses grace. And the lesson we come out of that is that the righteousness of God 
is more contagious than the sin of man. The righteousness of God is more contagious than your sin. Uh, You could look at the invalid in John chapter 5. Would Jesus heal him on the Sabbath? Jesus could have encountered him the day before. He could have said, come back tomorrow so that I don't have to heal you on the Sabbath. Instead, he meets the need in the moment rather than delaying the need because Jesus met the need by grace, not the law. A few chapters later in John chapter 8, there's a woman caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus with the demand of the people saying, the law says we must stone her. What do you say? And Jesus elects grace and forgiveness. Now, it's important to recognize Jesus does not elect to ignore sin. Jesus restores her. He says, woman, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He does not say, go and leave your life of sin. And when you're cleansed, come back and then I'll restore you. He says, no, I do not condemn you. And from this place where you understand you are not condemned in Christ, from that place you walk in freedom from your sin. And too many of us, church, are trying to clean up our act so that we can approach God. And that's not how it works. That's like washing the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. Just put them in the dishwasher. Jesus is there to cleanse you. You don't cleanse yourself before you approach him. I want to say it again, church. Jesus did not talk about grace because he lived a life that was so radically full of grace, it's all anyone could talk about. So much so that Paul referred to the whole gospel as the gospel of grace. And to a Galatian church that is struggling struggling to accept a gospel not based on works, I want you to see what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He says, if you remove grace from the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. Then he says after that, uh, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel. Do you know what's happening uh, in Galatians? They're trying to add the law to the gospel. They're trying to say uh, there's still an aspect of this that is based on your works. And what Paul says is that is a perversion of the gospel message. It's not about your works to approach Christ. It's about the works that Christ has already done on your behalf. And Peter addresses this issue again uh, in Acts chapter 15. In verse 5, it says, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles, in other words, new believers, must be circumcised and they must be required to keep the law of Moses. He's talking about new believers here, and they say that, that they should still keep the law of Moses. And Peter responds in verse 10, He says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have have been able to bear? In other words, do you remember the law when we lived by the law? We couldn't do it then. We can't do it now. Why would we ask others to do it? It's not based on the law. It's based on grace. And then he says, no, in verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Remember all of this that Peter's talking about here is not coming from teachings that we have in the Gospels on grace. It's coming from observations of Jesus' life and how he lived grace. Salvation is by grace alone. 
It's the great exchange. Uh, 2 Corinthians says that, that God who knew no sin became sin for us. That is grace in a nutshell. That Jesus, as he hung on the cross, endured your sin so that when he came off the cross, you would endure his righteousness. You gave him your sin. He gives you his righteousness, and we call it grace. And Paul, Peter said, no, Paul said, to remove grace out of the gospel and to try to bring works back into the picture is a perversion of the gospel, and it's no longer even the gospel. Now, here's the question this morning. How do we take this knowledge and make it effective and productive for the kingdom of God? And we're going to go right back to the verse that we were just in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live how? To live in the grace of Christ. This is how we have a productive and effective knowledge of grace. We live it, and we live in it. Uh, the understanding here is twofold. First of all, this is how you have been called according to his grace. In fact, uh, Paul said in Galatians 1.15 that this is how we have been called according to his grace. Paul understood this, and that's why when Paul messed up, Paul said, I can set that beside, I can leave it behind, and I can press on towards the goal of Christ because we want to have a pity party and we want to say, I have sinned and I'm going to punish myself and withhold myself from the presence of God for three weeks or whatever and, and enough Hail Marys, I don't know. And when I feel good enough about my week, I'll approach God again. And Paul said, no, we lay that down and we pursue God. You had a bad day, you lay it down and you pursue God because you were never able to approach him based on your works anyway. You're approaching him based on grace. Now, the second aspect of this, of living by grace, is living under the understanding that that grace we have was intended for everyone. And that should spur us on to a ministry towards others that tells them about the grace of Jesus Christ for them. Renee, could you go ahead and come? So we live according to his grace. And then the second thing here is we show his grace. We, we demonstrate his grace. Uh, and I just kind of mentioned this. We're recognizing that his grace towards us is the same grace that he has towards others. So what we have in the Gospels is we have a man, Jesus Christ, who does not talk about grace and talk about grace and talk about grace, but he lives it so radically that it's all anyone talks about. That is your calling. To live grace so visibly before everyone that you encounter that when they walk away, you don't even have to talk about grace in the conversation, but they're walking away and they're saying, whoa, grace. <laughs> Did you see how that person loved me when I treated them so badly? Did you see how they forgave me when, when I didn't deserve it? Grace. Because that is what we see in the Gospels. Romans 5, 17. I don't think I have this one. Thank you. 
should always be in a good mood. Biblically, do you see what's taking place? He has taken the worst of you and given the best of him. message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.